Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, keep your household, the Church, continually in your true religion, that we who trust in the hope of your heavenly grace may always be defended by your mighty power. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen. A reading from the Old Testament um, from the book of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me the word of the Lord. A reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, Accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? 
If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. The word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of the garrisonate, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put it out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets for a, ca- for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word we will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking, and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come out and help them. And they came and they f- and filled both boats so that they began to sink. <laughs> when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Good morning. Um, Good morning. I'm sorry you have to hear my voice so much today. <laughs> um, my name is Andine O'Neill. I am the pastor of Worship Arts, and occasionally I get the privilege of, of preaching. Um, We have the distinct privilege of talking about a very fascinating passage in Paul's letter to the Corinthians today. Before we dive all the way in, I want to give two illustrations that I think together will provide a helpful framework for how to approach this. First, I want to talk about Pride and Prejudice, the book, specifically the opening line. Jane Austen opens her treasured novel with this. Is it, a, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good, good fortune must be in want of a wife. Many of you are familiar with this work, but for those of you who aren't, let's orient ourselves. Jane Austen is writing in the early 19th century at a time when women were entirely dependent on husbands or perhaps benevolent male relatives for an income. Money and property were only inherited among men. So it was women who had the incredible pressure to procure a husband, not just for love, but for the prospect of any comfort in life, or perhaps even in the worst cases, for survival. The main characters and members of the Bennett family have five daughters, and they feel this pressure acutely. So to say, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife is not true. It is used ironically to point out this is not universally acknowledged. In fact, something closer to the opposite is actually true. And that truth, hidden in the irony, is Austin's strong critique. 
a jab at her culture, saying, the way our culture approaches marriage is foolish. Can't you see? Good rhetorical use of irony can have this effect. It reveals the incongruities between what appears to be and what actually is. It says one thing, but it means another. And that meaning is meant to hit you and make you think. All right, now hold that in your head on one side. Here's the other story. I want to share a story about driver's ed. For my in-the-car driving lessons with an instructor, we always had a partner student, and I was with a good friend. I thought it was going to be fun. The car was especially made for driving lessons. I'm assuming they still do this, where the passenger seat where the instructor sits has a brake um, uh, that he could use if the driver was going to make a, a serious error. I was sitting in the back seat and observing while my friend was driving, and we were at a stop sign waiting for an opening to cross a busy highway. I say a stop sign because I grew up in a town with no stoplight. My friend waited, picked her moment, hit the accelerator. And I remember this very clearly. The lurch forward was immediately followed by a jarring stop. The inertia slammed hard, and I, I, the inertia made me slam hard into the seatbelt, and I was ready for impact. The instructor had been forced to slam his brake. Before I could really get my bearings, the driving instructor began yelling in anger at the driving student. You would have been immediately hit by that car! That was so dangerous! That would have definitely been a major accident! Never pull out like that again! I was uncomfortable observing this interaction. You might be thinking, why would a driving instructor be quite so overtly angry? Well, there was a reason. It just so happens that in this case, the driving instructor was my friend's father. <laughs> now, that doesn't excuse a bad temper or anything, but I really think what I saw was a father's love for his daughter, full of fear and concern for her safety as he witnessed a very bad decision that would have had very scary consequences. He happened to be there, and he happened to have a brake pedal to stop her this time, but what about when she's driving on her own? His intensity stemmed from his love, and he wanted to impress upon her that she needed to take greater care because her life was on the line. Now, hold these two stories as we look at this passage. We're about to look at ancient literature together. It's perhaps not always easy to understand. Well, it's not. <laughs> we're going to look at what it says, and then we're going to look at what it means. And Paul is using irony strongly. Paul is, anger, is, is angry. And all of this stems from his deep love for the church. He's desperate for the bride of Christ to understand her life, that her life is on the line. And she needs to see the truth. Okay. If you've been worshiping with us for a while, you've probably come to understand this, but I want to make sure we're on the same page. Paul has been hurt by the church at Corinth. There were some super apostles who were actually false apostles who had persuaded Corinth that Paul was a poor speaker and that he was altogether unimpressive and weak because of all he constantly suffered. And furthermore, these super apostles, as Christians spoke last week, they were preaching a different gospel than the one Christ of Christ on the cross. And by all accounts, it seems these super apostles were suggesting that Gentiles keep Jewish law in order to be followers of Jesus. These things are, of course, related. If you see salvation as something that's earned by one's efforts, 
then it's natural to strive and make efforts to gain all the good things of life. All the good things that give the illusion of value. These super apostles were boasting in all their Jewish credentials and their ability to speak and the fact they'd earned money through their ministry because they were highly impressive. And by positioning suffering as something to be avoided, they were proclaiming a false gospel. Paul takes sharp aim at all these things. Suffering cannot be avoided. Grace cannot be earned. And Paul plays the fool to urge the Corinthians to embrace the kingdom's upside-down value system. We're going to spend a large chunk of our time simply fleshing out what Paul is saying. So what is going on here with Paul's language and emotion? I repeat, don't think of me as a fool, but if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast. I'm not speaking as the Lord would, I'm speaking as a fool. Paul is entering into a parody, saying, if I must be a fool, then receive me as you receive these other fools. And if fools boast, then I'll boast. One commentator said it helpfully, he's casting himself in the role of his opponents. He writes that this is not how the Lord would, see, would speak, essentially because the Lord would not speak as a fool. He is trying to give Corinth every clue that this next section of his letter is intentionally absurd. They should pay attention to the point. He continues, Oh, you wise Corinthians, you bear with fools so well. You don't mind if they make you a slave or devour you or take advantage of you or lie to you or slap you in the face. Paul is frustrated that the Corinthians didn't stand up for themselves, that they didn't stand up for Paul. They didn't stand up for the gospel that they'd been taught. And then he adds, this is the most biting irony I've, I've read in Paul, to my shame, we were too weak for that. By which he's saying, yes, in your wisdom, you let these aggressive super apostles take advantage of you, and goodness, to my shame and embarrassment, I've never done that to you. That must be because, as you and your super apostles have told me, I'm weak. So he's getting really serious. He's getting it really in their face. Yes, this is a scathing critique. In the same way that Jane Austen calls 19th century British marriage culture foolish, Paul calls the way the Corinthians are approaching the gospel life foolish. He intends to reveal both the fact that the Corinthians have been fools for bearing with fools, and, as we will see, he wants to show that the way of Christ really does include suffering, which, he realizes, will seem like foolishness to the world. All right, how does he compare with these super apostles exactly? Well, this is what he says. Fine, I'm weak and a fool. I'm also a Hebrew like them. I'm of the same race. I'm an Israelite. I have the same hope in history as them. I'm an offspring of Abraham. I have the same covenant promises as them. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. This is a launching point in which, in a less ironic passage, one might expect a list of accomplishments and strengths to follow. The super apostles presented themselves in triumph, and Paul, if he'd wanted, could have gone head to head. He could have said, I've started more churches, I've gained more converts, I have greater knowledge. But he didn't do any of that. He goes a very different direction, and he knows he's going against the grain of culture in doing so, and he confesses, I'm talking like a madman. He says he is a better servant of Christ because he's had far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and am often near death. This would have been a surprise to the readers. 
that this is why he's a better apostle. He goes into detail. Five times I received 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. One time I drifted at sea for a night and a day. This statement reads similar in form to statements of Roman exploits. Caesar Augustus is recorded saying, twice I received triumphal ovations. Three times I received curial triumphs. Twenty times and one did I receive the appellation of imperator. A quick aside here. This quote from Augustus might bring back to mind the triumphal procession that we discussed all the way in 2 Corinthians 2. It just so happened I was preaching that day, which is weird. I don't preach that often. But these are, these are connected here. These triumphal processions were an honor for a conquering military general in Rome. And Paul mentions in chapter 2 that being led in this procession as a place of honor was a place of honor for the apostle. And at first we read that, and it seems like it's talking about being victorious and triumphant in Christ. But that's not at all what Paul meant. The triumphal procession marched prisoners of war through the center of town and ultimately led them to their death. Back there in chapter 2 and once again here in 11, Paul is making an anti-triumphal point that the way of the apostle is actually marked by suffering. But before we go further down that path, let's finish looking at what the passage is saying. 39 lashes. You've heard of that before. That was, of course, the most severe punishment allowed by Jewish scriptures for those underneath the authority of the synagogues. He was beaten in this fashion five times. The Romans were out for him, too. Since Paul was a Roman, he really should have been spared this Roman punishment, but nonetheless, he was beaten the Roman way with a bunch of elm or birch rods bound together. That, was, that happened three times. And he was stoned, and somehow he's still alive, which is remarkable since stoning was the Jewish punishment, uh, it was the Jewish way of execution. And these frightening shipwrecks, we know this was essentially a regular part of his travel experience, we don't have other historical records to corroborate with these three, but we know of at least one more famous shipwreck that's recorded in Acts 27, but that occurs even after this letter was written. And there's more. Rivers and robbers, Jews and Gentiles already discussed. In the city, the wilderness, at sea, false brothers, toil, hardship, no sleep, hunger, thirst, cold, exposure. As we hear about Paul's various missionary journeys, it's really important for us to remember he's not a tourist. He's not traveling first class or business or even coach. In remote regions, there weren't bridges. He'd have to ford rivers. You know how often we died in Oregon Trail that way? <laughs> gangs, gangs maintained political power in certain rural regions and demanded and stole from travelers. He's beaten, exhausted, hungry. This was not his exception. This was his norm. This honestly sounds almost too much to endure. What is compelling Paul to endure? What's his ultimate concern? Here in this last portion of the list of suffering, I think we see why he's motivated. The climax of this fool speech, which is what it's called throughout church history, is spoken without sarcasm or irony. He writes that he is concerned greatly for the churches. He feels the personal pressure to guide each faith community to grow in the truth of Christ. He feels so connected to them, the way a father might feel for a child who's in danger. He adds that if a person or a community is weak, he is weak. If someone falls, he feels it deeply. And these pressures weighed on him, and they motivated him. 
This is the heart of a pastor. He loves Christ. And then he loves the bride of Christ, the church. Even when the church has been wronged, and in this case, the church has wronged Paul specifically. Paul still loves the church. He still loves the church at Corinth. Yes, he aims for correction and reconciliation. Love is not turning a blind eye. But even that is out of love for the church. I think Paul's reaction serves as a really important reminder for us. It's very easy to see all the ways the church has failed historically and right now. There are real serious issues in the church. People have been very hurt. The church has been swayed by false teachers. The church has been complicit in darkly sinful abuse and injustices. In response to this, some people have said, I swear off the church. I love Jesus, but his church is messed up. Well, that's not entirely untrue, but that's not what Paul does here, and that's not what we should do. Do we ignore issues or abuse or lies? No, not at all. If we care about the bride of Christ, then we care when there are harmful issues of any kind, the way Paul is caring now. Paul uses sharp language to point these issues out. He wants to convict the church and point towards correction out of love and his desire for her to live in truth. And after this, Paul makes this oath, after all this boasting and irony, he makes an oath to God the Father asserting that he is not lying, an oath the duplicitous super-apostles would not have been able to make. And then there's this concluding flourish in this testimony. It's, it's really almost comical. Again, if he were listing this, uh, a list of qualifications, this is where you might expect something extra impressive. And by the way, boom, the end. I'm great. But instead, he says, oh yes, and once a governor set guards at the city gate to capture me, and I used my enormous strength and skill and fought my way out like a warrior. No, that's not what he did. What it says, he says, I escaped kind of like a deserter in battle almost. And I was lowered through a hole in a wall that was probably in a basket that was probably meant for carrying dead fish. I'm not sure if that counts as a raging success story. Paul is making a point and underlining it like 17 times. Suffering cannot be avoided. Grace cannot be earned. And Paul plays the fool to urge the Corinthians to embrace the kingdom's upside-down value system. So we've covered what the passage says and why Paul says it. But what exactly does this mean? Paul is masterfully using irony. He is angry with fatherly love. But what kind of course correction is he asking them to make? I'm going to zero in on two specific implications. Paul invites them not to the good life, but to the great life. This is not easy to hear, but Paul is inviting his readers to surrender their desire for the good life, their desire to gain everything that makes them feel comfortable and successful and avoid everything that doesn't. I want to be very clear here that I don't think, well, I know, Paul is not saying that everyone must suffer as he does in order to follow Christ. Nor does suffering earn you great rewards. can't earn anything. 
in this graceful kingdom of God, grace-filled kingdom of God. Please never go looking for suffering. Such a thing would be to mar God's good gifts to you. God actually does desire good gifts for his children. He has gifted people with skills and leadership and possibly even wealth to steward for his purposes. He does not desire that his children should suffer, but life aimed at the avoidance of suffering is heading in the wrong direction, and it's heading for a bad ending, mostly because that's impossible. You know that. I know that. And living a lie in hopes of an impossible outcome will wear your soul down to a nub. We are living in the already not yet stage of redemptive, of the redemptive story. The effects of the fall are still in us and around us. And trying to escape that reality with a lie does not give satisfaction. There's no hope for understanding the depth of real love and real peace without also surrendering to this real truth. The ability to endure suffering demonstrates an upside-down value system that the new covenant of Christ embodied. Safety and security, or power and riches, or anything else typically associated with the good life, are not promised to those who follow Christ. In his life, Jesus says things, many things, like the last shall be first, the least shall be greatest. And, And though he was king, he didn't wage a typical war and conquer enemy nations. He suffered and died on a cross. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God will choose the foolish things to shame the wise. This is very much what's happening in this passage. All the scriptures of the New Testament call out to us to live in this upside-down kingdom of God. I'm reminded of a very, very well-known scene in the movie The Matrix. Keanu Reeves' character, Neo, is invited to make a very important decision. He's made aware that his world is not what it seemed to be. He was offered a choice. Take the red pill and learn the life-changing truth about the nature of his world and his identity in it. Or take the blue pill to forget all unsettling and uncomfortable truths and return to ignorance. Paul is urging the Corinthians, please don't turn toward ignorance. I beg of you, take the leap. Be countercultural here and see the upside-down kingdom that Christ ushered in. It may not be the easy life, but it's the true life. It may not be always the good life, but it is the great life. And this great life cannot be bought except by the one who has already purchased it for you, the one who looked suffering straight in the face, saw it, experienced it, and defeated it, the one who crushed the serpent with the strike of his heel. So that was the first implication. The second is that grace is a gift. You simply need to receive and respond. Essentially, all of this is a satirical, ironic way to clarify for a confused group of people that there is an incredible, life-changing gift waiting for them. And all they have to do is receive it. Paul is saying, you think you're wise, but you're foolish to believe the super apostles who say you need Jewish practices or other things to follow Christ, that you need to add anything onto the gift of grace that Jesus is offering. You're foolish to assume I am weak. I'm a weak apostle because I've not earned enough impressive accolades. And I I do think it can be really hard to receive gifts. I, I know it can be hard for me, 
Can you just receive something amazing and respond without feeling like you need to sort of earn it, even afterwards? This happened to me this week. Um, my kind-hearted husband offered to take time away from work to be with a sick child for a few days so that I could work. And honestly, I had a really hard time with that. <laughs> Knowing he was taking days off work from his demanding job so I could write my sermon meant that I would feel this enormous pressure <laughs> to optimize my time. Like, I better have something really good to show for my day if my husband is taking a day off of work so that I can write. I must have so much done. I must have incredible theological insights, and I can't stand that. <laughs> That's too much pressure. If I took him up on it, would I be able to satisfy him with the work I got done? And I feared that I wouldn't, and I told him that. Sean responded, there's no pressure here, Andy. Just be grateful. Just work humbly, not worrying about efficiency. Just go and enjoy living out this call on your life this week to teach in this particular way. Well, that was nice. <laughs> it turns out Sean's gift of time and ultimately of love was not something I needed to earn. And when I could receive it as a true gift and not as a circumstance for potential failure or stress, I was free to actually respond in humility, and just do the next right thing that God was calling me to. The gospel, this gift, functions in similar ways. There is no need to prove yourself to anyone, including yourself. You don't need to be impressive to anyone. Jesus' blood has satisfied the debt and his resurrection power has been gifted to you. Receive it. Enjoy it. And yes, respond to it but in the fashion with the nature of the gift. The gift of a father who loves you and wants to, you to live as one who knows the truth and one who can humbly and courageously participate in the ongoing, messy, hard, but beautiful kingdom work we're called to. The life of an apostle like Paul shows us the value of this gift. Now consider again Paul's laundry list of near-death experiences. As I studied this initially, I thought, wow, Paul escaped death like a bazillion times. He's like James Bond. Like, how did he survive that? How did he survive that? How can one man keep not dying when so many people want him dead? It's really remarkable. And I thought, you know what? Maybe he was actually boasting unironically a little bit after all. But then I realized I'd missed the point. Paul isn't listing these things to show his great ability to survive. For to him, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He doesn't care as much about eating or drinking or even dying as he does about the spreading the good news of Christ, the gift of the gospel and the great life that can be found there. Suffering cannot be avoided. Grace cannot be earned. And Paul plays the fool to urge the Corinthians to embrace the kingdom's upside-down value system. So in conclusion, I want to ask, do we think this is something worth being a fool for? How are we feeling today? I think in our very specific cultural moment, life is fairly difficult. Where political parties seem incurably polarized. Racial justice and harmony feel very far from our grasp. Where the weight of the pandemic, all the grief and various perspectives on the way forward 
are nearly crushing us, it may at first feel very tempting to say, um, where do I sign up for the blue pill? Where can I go? And whom can I put my trust so that I'm just safe, secure, and life can be easy? But we know to whom we should go. We should go to the one who has the words of eternal life. Let's look for a moment at our Isaiah and Luke passages. Here we see God is in the business of recruiting people for his mission to catch this vision and live with abandon for it. We see Isaiah saying, I'm not worthy to be with and see God. I'm unclean. I'm sinful. Then God graciously cleanses him. Isaiah does nothing to deserve this and invites him into the truth and then in the service of his redemptive mission. In Luke 5, we see Jesus with some fishermen. He sat in their boat, taught them, told them to put down their nets. Simon believed it would come to nothing. They hadn't caught anything all night. But the catch was so miraculously huge that Simon Peter knew he was witnessing Jesus' supernatural power. And just like Isaiah, Peter says, I'm sinful. I cannot be near you. I don't deserve this. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Will you partner with me on my mission? Will you help others see the truth I proclaim? In both cases, a gift is offered. In both cases, recipients don't think they deserve it. In both cases, the recipient will, through grace, enter into and proclaim a truth that is countercultural to their day. This truth will not earn them worldly accolades, but they will know the love, the grace, and the truth of God. And I pray we will too. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, make our hearts soft. Make our minds hungry. Invite us so strongly into your mission, into your kingdom work, that we can follow the examples of Paul and Peter and Isaiah and say yes to your kingdom. Amen.